This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver, Mayor Mike Johnston has been in office for five months now. Is he keeping his campaign promises? We're bringing back the conversation producer Paul Caroli and I had with our now mayor right before the runoff election, where we asked him about the micro communities he was promising for people experiencing homelessness, what he would do about downtown, and so much more. Let's see how it sounds on the other side of the election. Today is Wednesday, December 27th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Mike Johnston, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be back. So, Mike, you've been on the show. Uh, we know you and your vision for the city. And that vision is resonating with a lot of voters because you made the runoff. Um, you won the most votes with 24%. Your runoff opponent, Kelly Bruff, won 20%. What do you take away from those results? I mean, I think the thing that we were most excited about from those results were if you looked at the way election results came in that night, you know, you have that first big tranche of voters that land right at seven o'clock, which are people who voted early. Um, and those tend to be older, whiter, more conservative voters. And uh, we won those voters free and clear above all the other candidates. But I think equally, maybe more exciting was then we had that huge tranche of voters that voted in the very last two hours on Tuesday night, like 50,000 voters who voted from 5 to 7 p.m. And they were overwhelmingly younger, more progressive, more diverse voters. And we also won that entire tranche of voters uh, free and clear. And so for us, I think what was exciting about that night was there is clearly a really broad and diverse coalition from all parts of the city that uh, shares, I think, our vision of what's possible for Denver. And that's the, that's the group we're working to build on and coalesce an even larger group into the runoff. And why do you, I mean, that's great. I agree with you. I think um, just thinking about who is voting says a lot about what's going on in the city. But there was also this like huge chunk of eligible voters who didn't vote. Yes. What do you think that says about Denver? I mean, I talked to a lot of people and I think some people read that as apathy or people not being engaged. And and I found it as, I mean, you know, for those of us that are in the know, it was overwhelming to manage a candidate race with 17 candidates in it. And if you're someone, and I didn't find that people didn't take it seriously, I found they did take it seriously. And because they took it seriously, they felt the obligation to really research 17 candidates and make an informed decision. And that, I think, was a lot of things voters hoped to plan to do and then never got around to doing. And so I think it was more a matter of them feeling a little overwhelmed by by the race. I'm optimistic that in this race where it's down to two candidates, people will feel like it's much more accessible. And I'm hoping we're going to see much higher turnout. Mike here, our, our idea for this conversation is, you know, we've heard a lot of, we've heard a lot of interviews with you about policy. We, we kind of know where you're coming from. But, so there's, there's some topics that we either haven't heard you talk about, or we want to go into a little bit of more depth. And this is, this is one of those. So this is from- Is uh, it about a meteor hitting the earth? I, I saw that you got a question about a meteor hitting <laughs> no, Wyoming. No, I was like, wait, what? Is this yeah, like had, large a, boulder the size of small boulder? We had a meteor hitting Wyoming. The last time someone said, I have a question that no one's asked you before. And I was like, no, I bet you don't. And then really, they did. It I definitely not, was. Yeah. I had not gotten that one yet. Um, well, this one I know you have had before, but we want to hear. We want to go a little deeper. Um, this is from the New York Sun. They reported this a few weeks ago um, that you were a member of the Skull and Bones Society group at Yale University. 
correct? Uh, yes. Um, so this is um, this is an issue because, well, this is a group that has produced a lot of the world's most rich and powerful people. So we're we're concerned. People want to know what happens in those rooms. What are these relationships like? What are we getting into if we vote for you? Yeah, I think it's much less uh, dramatic than people might assume from reading the New York Sandwich. Yeah, I think it's sort of a, a Trump conspiracy paper. So it was surprising to have that coming from across the country. But I mean, a couple of things that are most important to me. Uh, it was a group that was entirely diverse by uh, race and gender. When I when I joined, that was the case. Mm -hmm. um, it had been integrated racially for more than 50 years by the time I got there. Uh, and so actually, the majority of members in my group were people of color. And so I think importantly, it takes people of all backgrounds, all interests. And it's really a, it's really a social group. It's sort of like a fraternity, sorority, senior year your partnership. It's, and it's a debate club. People sit and talk and discuss ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but they're friends, just like any other friends that you had in college. I did a lot of theater in college, and I have friends from theater. I did a lot of community service in college. I have friends from community service. I played soccer in college. I have friends from the soccer team. So I think it's very much like other extracurriculars you do in college, and you stay in touch with those friends or, or right. don't. There's one thing about this group that always gets reported whenever it comes up, and I've always been curious to know if this is real. And I'm not sure if I've ever had this opportunity before, so I'm going to ask you directly. <laughs> Do you really have to leave the room when this comes up? Um, well, I didn't leave the room when it came up now. So I, th I think. But is that uh, a thing? Like, uh, is that part of it? I think there are parts of, in, in the olden days, people used to take the tradition far more seriously. I mean, there was also mm -hmm. a time where the members were always printed on the front page of the New York Times. So it's not exactly all that secretive. Right, right. And you've really emphasized how diverse this group was whenever it's come up. But I think, but I think the fact that this story has resonated with a lot of people shows, at least me, that other people share my concern, that there's this sense with you that you have these connections with the rich and powerful people, like the movers and shakers of the world. So like one of your main donors, your biggest financial supporters is the co-founder of LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman. What happens if Hoffman comes through Denver asking for a favor? Yeah, and I've, I've had this question and I, I appreciate it. I, I mean, for me, it's the opposite of what you see when people are looking at donors with special interests. For me, donors with interests are people that have development projects before the city or care about what the city council can approve. Uh, these are not, but there's nothing requested, nothing demanded. Uh, anyone that ever supports me knows that I'm clear exactly what I stand for. And if you want to support that, great. But what I stand for is not going to change based on whether you support me or not. Okay. Okay. So we talked to your opponent about uh, potential conflicts of interest. Um, with her, it was around her partner's involvement with lobbying and the local government. So I want to ask about your wife, Courtney Johnston. Um, she works in the DA's office, if I'm correct. Is correct. That, okay. Um, so you told Denverite that she would, quote, recuse herself in the event that her work would overlap with a mayoral issue. How are you going to figure that out? So that question was about what if they what if the district attorney is prosecuting the mayor or prosecuting the mayor's office, mm -hmm. um, and so there are cases where that there is a procedure where if there is a perceived conflict, the district attorney's office they can opt out, and there is a separate DA from a different region that steps in to prosecute those cases. So I'm not planning on doing anything to break the law or having anyone on my team that breaks the law. Um, but so they were asking about what would happen if the DA were in some way prosecuting the mayor or the mayor's office, and there is a, a system for alternative counsel uh, if that happens. Again, I've never known that to happen, but that was the question that was posed to me, so that was how I asked it. But I don't I don't see there as any direct conflict because I obviously don't appoint the DA or run the DA's office. Yeah. That's all done by Beth McCann. Let's move on to uh, one of the biggest issues in the campaign so far, uh, downtown, mm -hmm. what to do about it. Commuters are still not returning after the pandemic. A lot of businesses are suffering for that reason. It's also a place where not everyone feels safe and a place where a lot of visitors to our city see first and are maybe not thrilled with what they see. What would you do about downtown 
had an office in downtown the last three years, so I've lived that every day. Mm. Uh, and I think this is about, first, a real focus on getting access to services for folks who are unhoused right now. That is a significant impact on quality of life and needs in downtown. I think the second is really about public safety and how we make sure we can restore a sense of public safety in downtown that people feel like they are welcome and safe and um, uh, can live and play and work in downtown. And then it's how do you provide the right set of incentives to bring people back to downtown who may have left or may be thinking about leaving. And I think that includes businesses. I think that includes employees day to day. We want to encourage employees to come back to work in person, not just because it makes the city vibrant downtown, but there are a lot of workers that rely on those employees to come back if they're going to get shifts back working at a coffee shop or a restaurant or a retail store. And to do that, we want to do things like uh, incentivize bringing childcare facilities into downtown. We have a real childcare desert in many parts of Denver, but downtown is one of them. If you could get great, reliable, high-quality childcare in downtown, you're mm -hmm. more likely to come downtown for work. I want to work with businesses to make uh, commuting to and from downtown free. So you, if you're someone that works downtown, you could take the light rail or take the, the bus and be able to get to and from with, on an eco pass that would make your transit free. At yeah, both, that proposal was very unpopular at the <laughs> legislature last year. I uh, think that got the August, shouted down. The August? The, no, the, not the August one. There was a proposal for uh, businesses to require a certain amount of eco passes and it was quite unpopular if I remember correctly. Yeah, the businesses have done them in the past. They've actually, pre-pandemic, they spent tens of millions of dollars to fund that for their employees. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to encourage them to come back and do that. What we can help do from the city side is buy that down in bulk. If we're going to be a one massive buyer, then to be able to say we want 50,000 or 70,000 passes, you can get far greater discounts on the cost of them and make them available to small businesses, large businesses, but particularly if you're an hourly worker and you got to drive downtown and you got to pay 20 hours to, or $20 to park, that's a huge impact on your income. And so we think it both will encourage more people to come back to work in person and make it easier on those blue collar workers who are making hourly wages to not have to give up a significant amount of that to parking or gas. Hmm. Would you ever consider making RTD free? I, I have thought about this and looked at it a lot. Um, I am interested in it. One of the things, I made a commitment early on that everything uh, that I've proposed as a policy item in this campaign, I can pay for and can pay for out of existing city dollars. And so uh, we've started with focusing on commuters and kids and we want to extend to seniors as a ways to make certain lines free or certain people free. Um, but I do think we want to look at as, as many incentives as we can to expand it. We just got to figure out how the right way is to pay for that and how to partner with RTD to do it. I think generally uh, it's easier if you have it linked to either an employer somehow so then you can issue passes through them and you can track them. Uh, there are some public safety concerns from some places that have tried this around people that ride the public transit perpetually as a way to find shelter. We want to make sure those people have other access to shelter. Um, but I do think we want to lower the barriers as much as possible to riding. And right now what we see is we have really low ridership. And the challenge is when you have low ridership, then you get fewer routes. When you have fewer routes, you also get less ridership. And so it's a bit of a doom loop right now. I want to reverse that into a, you know, a victorious cycle, not a vicious cycle of first getting a lot more riders on. And then when we have more riders, we can get more routes and more reliability uh, and with the hope that that gets far greater use. One more thought before we leave downtown. Did, did you hear about this program the Downtown Denver Partnership did last summer where they offered free rent to first-time retail businesses to set up on the 16th Street Mall? I did. How did you feel about that? 
Well, I mean, I, I, good I, idea? I, I admire the creativity. If you've been to the 16th Street Mall recently right now, almost every storefront along where the construction is is totally closed. I mean, you know, even a Tokyo Joe's can't stay in business right now, no matter how many incentives you provide. So the crisis is very real. And when you add a pandemic plus the challenge around homelessness and crime and affordability, and then you add tearing up the entire 16th Street Mall for construction, it is a pretty, it's a perfect storm for a lot of businesses there. So I think we have to do everything possible we can to incentivize those businesses to come back. Um, uh, and I, I think that one was challenging just because the construction made it hard, but we, we need to find ways to not just incentivize businesses to come back, but how are we going to use the other 40, 50, 60% of office space that's unutilized right now, whether mm -hmm. that is for nonprofits, whether that's for startups, whether that's for artists, whether that's for childcare facilities. I think we have to really be creative about an all of the above strategy to reactivate downtown. Um, all right. Well, Mike, as mayor, you're, you'd be the champion for the whole city. Um, it will be your job to represent us. I wonder, what are your blind spots in this city? What communities do you just not know? You know, industries or areas? Uh, I think there are, I mean, I, I think maybe my best trait is I'm very curious. So I always believe everybody I meet, I have something to learn from. It's just a matter of if I can be smart enough to figure out what it is I have to learn. So I ask a lot of questions. I've been to all 78 neighborhoods. I've had the chance to work in different parts of the city. The things to learn for me will be, I've not worked inside city government before. And so I have worked with the city. I've worked in partnership. I've worked at the state level. Uh, but I have a lot to learn from talking to frontline employees in the city and county of what are the challenges they're facing? What is making their job easy? What's making it hard? What things can we make easier for them? Um, and so uh, I think for me, a lot of it is to learn the internal functioning of the kind of 11,000 person organization that is the city. Uh, I've had a lot of chance to lead and run other large and complex organizations. So I feel very comfortable with my ability as a leader and a manager. Um, but there are always, every organization has its own culture. And I think that's one uh, that I would want to learn. Um, uh, I think that's probably an area. I think the other place I probably haven't spent as much uh, time in my background is in health, as in public health. Um, I've done a fair amount of work in mental health and in education, housing. Uh, I'm a big fan of Donna Linz, who's the new leader of, Don, of, of uh, Denver Health. And so we'll be excited to partner uh, with her, but I'd put that as an area of growth probably for me in terms of areas I've worked in the past. But on the flip side of this blind spots question, you know, there's also your core community, your trusted advisors. Who are those people for you? I guess there, I would just think about people right now that are close advisors of mine who I go to for questions. They're everything from uh, I was with last night, uh, Makisha Booth, who is a woman who runs an incubator to help black women start businesses in Denver. Um, uh, which is called Sistabiz. Like she's a great combination of civic leader and political leader. Someone like Nita and Rudy Gonzalez, who run Servicios de la Raza on the West Side, who've both been longtime visionaries behind the design of things like the STAR program, but also have just been community activists who provide public services on a day-to-day -day basis to families that are most in need. Um, someone like Marissa Molina, who's been a longtime friend, who is, I think, one of the strongest advocates in the city around supporting families who are undocumented and what that plight is like and how we get those people access to opportunity. So I try to think both in terms of regions of the city where I want to have experts and in terms of industries, who do I know uh, in the nonprofit space? Who do I know in the public sector space? Who do I know in the for-profit space? Who do I know in technology? Or who do I know in uh, social work? Um, because then that Rolodex, the people that you call on for help when you have a question about how we're going to think about, for instance, filling the gap of uh, people that have high levels of both physical health needs and behavioral health needs and are not independently skilled enough to support themselves on the streets, but don't belong in corrections or an emergency room. Like that's what Donald and I were talking about is there is a population there that is falling through all of the various cracks of services. Hmm. Uh, how do we design that? And then I know who the homelessness providers I might call are or who the public health providers I might call or who the nonprofit leaders I might call. 
You mentioned the STAR program. Um, I, it, it's done really well. But I, I've seen the funding just is sort of incremental. It'll get a million dollars and then it'll get another million dollars. It's it just like it feels very slow compared to, say, the annual budget for police, which is hundreds of millions of dollars. How would you approach this conversation around public safety when it comes to some folks feel their neighborhoods are over-policed, a lot of folks feel there's too much crime and there's not enough policing, and then we have something like the STAR program that serves another need. What would your picture of public safety look like when it comes to funding? You know, this is a good example, ironic, of how I learned as I sat down with a set of community leaders who run the STAR program last week and got their feedback. And one of the things they said is, to your point, is that the STAR program is actually dramatically underutilized right now from what it should be. And it's particularly underutilized in communities of color because the only way you can get access to STAR right now is calling 911. There are a lot of communities for whom they're not going to feel comfortable calling 911, either because of a history of negative interactions with police or worries about documentation status. And so we're missing a whole population of people for whom the STAR could be the right intervention that don't now feel comfortable to access it. So we've got to find a different way to make that more accessible to a broader group of people. For me, it is about, uh, as you said, a much broader definition of public safety than what people currently think about it as, which is how many cops do you have or how many crimes are there in a year. For me, kind of the opposite of crime is not public safety. The opposite of crime is joy. You know, it's how are you bringing joy to neighborhoods, which is about how are you making neighborhoods brightly lit and well-stocked with retailers and have art and, and community spaces that are openly used. It's about a combination of prevention, uh, both for young people, getting them access to the things that help them find their passion before they get into negative peer groups. It's intervention for adults and young people the first time they get involved with any sort of negative criminal justice system to help get them the supports they need to stay out. Um, and so I think what I would want back would be real community-based policing where you have officers that are out walking beats in neighborhoods, and they're the same officers there every day, and you know them, and they knock on your business or knock on your home and ask how you are, and they're visible, and you have their business card, and you can call them with questions, and they are there to shoot hoops in the afternoon with kids or be there at the quinceanera, whatever it might be. Gun violence. We've talked to teenagers at East High School who feel that the adults have sort of left the room and they're going to do what they need to do to get this figured out. But I also think about um, in my neighborhood in particular, I live on the far west side in Barnum. Youth gun violence is a huge issue. And I watch my city councilwoman struggle with it because she's out in the city every day talking to our neighbors, but we're still not solving that problem. What is your approach to youth gun violence like it, in Denver? What, what do you want to do about it? Yeah, and this this one is one of the hardest issues and one of the most heartbreaking issues. And and you're right, it's showing up in all sorts of places that don't appear as East High School. It's a quiet shooting on a Saturday night. You might not notice in Montbello where another teenage kid is shot by another teenage kid. Um, so yes, we have to focus on school safety, but there is a broader epidemic of youth gun violence. And that's where I think this focus on early prevention. I want to get all kids who are on free and reduced lunch access to after school and summer school programming so they find an area of passion that's a positive peer group. That's really important. It can make a big difference for kids. Then it is intervention. We know, you know, I've worked with a lot of kids that had criminal backgrounds before, and there are early warning signs. The first time you make a small bad decision, you steal something small from the grocery store, or you're in a car with a friend who has a gun, but you don't have one, we know your risk levels are going up dramatically at that point, and that's where we really have to put resources to wrap around those supports with you and your family and getting other positive adults in your life. Uh, and then you do need stronger relationships in the community so that you do have officers who know these kids and know the kids that are at risk of trouble. Like, hmm. I mean, the, the people that are great at this, they're tracking social media every night. They know when you're talking trash from one kid to another. They know whose cousin is, is connected to which neighborhood group and what might be the risk of a party happening tomorrow night that could have someone that's violent at it. I mean, it really is just great uh, active community work when you 
you do it well, but it's going to take all of the above for us to get. And then things like, yes, stopping ghost guns and getting better red flag laws for teachers and social workers. But this one is going to take a really comprehensive approach and it's going to take adjusting the dial on because, you know, to get far more engaged, we have to be far more present. And there will be some communities who will say, wait, this feels like you're, this feels like you're too engaged. Then we have to dial it back. But I think the feedback we're getting right now is people do really want more support and more engagement in a more collaborative way to be able to intervene before you have kids that are shooting each other. Um, but that is a, I'm worried about safety this summer. I think we're set up for what could be a very violent summer. Uh, and so this, this is going to be a very urgent issue, I think, to look at it in a very collaborative way. Hmm. Well, more support, that's going to mean more money, which brings us back to the budgeting question. Would you put any constraints on the budget for public safety to ensure that it goes to the things that you were, were talking about and not you know, the, th- the images that are in all of our minds right now? Yeah, I've explicitly um, uh, framed that I, I said I didn't think we needed to cut the security budget. I don't think we need to, the public safety budget, I don't think we need to expand it in its current form. I think there, where it is, we can use that resources to both add officers, but also to add mental health workers, also to add first responders who can do that kind of response. All the things that I have proposed to this date are within a current budget, so they don't require new expenditures yet. But I do think as we look at things like, all right, how far can the STAR program grow? If we have different access for communities of color who are going to use it at much higher rates than they are currently, will that require additional expansion? I think what what we want to do is be listening to community members uh, and be adding in the safety that they're asking for and making sure that it feels the way they want it to feel, um, and then making sure that it's making an actual impact. We do want communities to feel safer. We also want to see the data move. We want to see fewer kids killed each year. Um, we want to see fewer violent crimes each year. Uh, but I think there are a lot of ways to do that. I'll give you one example. There are some really interesting uh, people working on this idea that they call the nightmare uh night oh, yeah. oh, separate words mayor you've talked to him you've talked yeah, to steven we've and, had Stephen brackett on he's okay, a good so friend of mine so you know so he's doing amazing work on this and the idea is how do you think proactively about how to activate positive activities for people around the city in the evening time not just be a place where we're all hunkered down hoping nothing goes wrong but we're actually deliberately approaching how to make sure something goes right um and so those are the kind of ideas i think are on the how do you bring joy to the city as opposed to how do you sort of cower in fear about crime. Uh, it's a matter of how do you repopulate those spaces with joy and life uh, that I think is the best way to dispel crime. Well, are you on board for his whole thing then? Like creating an office of a nightmare here in Denver? <laughs> so I've talked to him about it. I have to, we, we're going to have a longer sit down to talk through the details. and the. Bu- so for me, the only question is the budget. I have to commit to you. I know how to pay for it if right. I'm going to do that. But I think the idea is 100% right. Uh, and I think that it is a gr- brilliant way to think about not only what makes the city vibrant and a place you love to hang out, but also what makes the city safe in the most joyful of ways. And so I think it is, uh, a gr- and this is a, for me a big way of how I would approach governing the city, which is I never expect expect that we're going to have all the solutions at the city. What you want is for people like these to come up and say, hey, we have a great idea. Here's how it is. How do we connect with you and the rest of the city to make it happen? Uh, So we don't need to own all these or run all these, but we want to partner on all of them. Uh, And I think this is exactly what the city is going to need going forward. Hmm. Interesting. We'll have to put a link to that episode in the show notes to this one so people can learn more. I need to listen to it too because I've talked to him, but I haven't listened to your show yet. He's a fascinating guy. He is a fascinating guy. So I got to ask you about one thing that is just a a personal obsession of mine. because It's not belt buckles. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not belt buckles. (laughs) Um, It's population growth. Mm. Ever since I moved here, the narrative has been Denver's got this explosive growth that we just can't do anything about. People want to move here. People want to live here. This is not actually the case anymore. There are indications that our population growth is slowing, if not moving the wrong direction. How, How do you see that? Is that a problem? I think it is a problem, and I think it will continue to be a concern if people don't feel 
uh, safe and like they can afford to live here. And so uh, I, I, I do worry. I mean, we're focused on how do we make sure we provide housing for the folks that are here now. But you are kind of either you're a growing city or you're a dying city. It's hard to be one that is just flatlining. And I think we want to be growing. We just want to be growing in a way that keeps the city affordable. Because I think what people get afraid of is the only examples we've seen are the San Francisco's of the world, where when you just keep growing and people keep wanting to come, you eventually make it impossible for any regular worker to afford to live there anymore. And so when I hear people talk about their worry about growth, that's what they're talking about. And for me, the housing development is a good example of that. You see tons of cranes in the air and tons of units being built and tons of people saying, why are none of those units accessible for me? And then they start saying, I hate development. Well, they don't. I don't think necessarily hate development. They hate development that doesn't serve the very people who are struggling the most to make it. And so I think if you're building units that are making it more affordable for the families that have lived and grown up here to stay or the people that are entry-level employees to stay, I think that's something that there is support for. We just haven't done that. Well, there's another piece of this conversation you didn't touch on, but our, our current mayor makes a real big priority of it. His whole thing was making Denver a world-class city. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that could include things like hosting a, an Olympics here, perhaps, you know, to make sure we're burnishing our reputation and attracting new people. Is that the kind of thing we could expect from a Johnston administration too? I do think we want events that attract more and more people to come to Denver. Uh, And so I think that means, you know, conventions, that means conferences, that means uh, sporting events. We'd love to have the all-star game here, things of that scale. Uh, The Olympics is a very different scale of question because the question is what kind of infrastructure do you have to build and how much does that cost and how good is that for the city long-term? I think the people who are working on this the last time were being much more creative about how you use it to actually build things the city needs, like affordable housing that you can use for an Olympic village and then hand off to uh, people that live here. And so um, I do want to attract more attention and more visibility and more uh, tourism to Denver. That helps all of our economy and looking for events to do that. Um, I think the Olympics is quite a long way out now after our, so I don't think that's a- But it sounds like you're open to it. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm never close to it. I think I'm always, my only question is, does it support the city short-term and does it support it long-term? If we could use it to help solve our I-70 transit- that's the question. If it could support our (laughs) I-70 transit solution in a way that would be meaningful, uh, I would would love to see that happen. Uh, And so uh, it's a question of how you can use it for for good. Mm -hmm. So we have a question from a listener. Dana from Montclair here. As a city employee, I'm helping elect my new boss. How will you as mayor support employees' efforts to unionize? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for the question. And I'm actually really proud of the fact that we have incredible support from labor across the city. We got the endorsement of the Denver Area Labor Federation, which represents more than 110 unions, more than 90,000 workers all across the city and the region. Um, I think because I both had a strong history of working with labor and being a great partner, I had a 100% 100% AFL-CIO voting record in the Senate when I was there, uh, but also because I've been a I've been a principal who's worked with unionized workforces uh, when I was a school principal and had the chance to be good partners there. Um, and so I think for me, uh, I want to make sure employees have a voice. Uh, they get benefits and wages and supports that they need to want to, we have to make Denver the best place to work. And that means we got to make employees want to work here and want to stay here. I've been a su- supporter of collective bargaining in the past. I think that it can be, it's a very important tool for, uh, for making sure employees can have their voices heard. And so I think there's lots of good work we can do and would do going forward. And I think for me, one of the most important things that always drives your satisfaction as an employee is, do you feel like you have a voice? Is that voice heard? And when you raise it, does it make a difference? And I want to make sure that I'm a partner that makes that true. All right, we got one other question here for you, Mike, from a listener. This one is a voicemail. Hi, CityCast Denver. This is Bailey Rose. Again. <laughs> I am curious where he thinks he's going to put the tiny homes that he's proposed to solve the unhoused issue. 
because, yeah, I just feel like he'll probably put them outside of the city, but then all the services for unhoused folks and also the thought process of if there are on the streets and close to the services they need downtown and the neighbors haven't been liking them, what makes him think that they would like tiny homes in their neighborhood and like where? Because there's not a lot of empty lots. That's my number one question with Mike Johnson. Where is he going to put these tiny homes? And are they close to the services that these people need? Okay, thanks. Ciao, ciao, bye. Such a great question. And she hit on all of the key components of this. Um, this is why I'm so optimistic about the ability for us to make a dramatic impact on this problem, as I think there are a couple of breakthroughs we've learned from other cities and from Denver here uh, that work. And the reason why I think these micro communities work and they have succeeded in Denver, I think we talked about it last time, is because, yes, you take half acre or acre lots and you put 40 or 50 tiny homes on them. I always tell folks, if you want to see an example of how this works and works well, you can go up to North Park Hill and there's one there at 40th and Monroe. Um, and the reason why it works is because you can then put wraparound services on the site. So you have mental health support on site, you have addiction treatment on site, you have workforce training on site, you have kitchen and showers and bathrooms all on site. Um, and so that means that people don't have to commute back to downtown every single day to get access to services or to food or to a caseworker. And so that's what changes the game about what's possible. And then you can really cite them anywhere. And we do know it's harder to do them in the middle of heavily residential neighborhoods or right next to elementary schools. And I think that's a fair, a fair criticism. But what you want to do is, yes, you want to spread those out. You want to put them in places that aren't heavily residential. Then you want to bring services to them, which means there's much more flexibility in where you can cite them. And what I would do is come to neighborhoods and not say, do you want one or do you not? Uh, but here are three or four lots that the city owns in this region of the city. Give us feedback on what you think is the right one of these. Um, and what we found is we know there's concern up front. But that we've also found almost universal satisfaction after they've been placed. Uh, when you go to the community up in the beloved community up in North Park Hill, great response from neighbors, great response from um, the commercial partners. Uh, it's incredibly well kept. People are on their feet and getting back to work. When you have your shelter taken care of and you have food taken care of and you have services taken care of, then you have the time to take a breath think about how to get a job and you actually have an address. So if you want to apply for a job, you have a place for an employer to reach you and they, you can be able to submit applications or do interviews. And so I think this gets a very different sense of momentum for people back up on their feet than what people see downtown encampments where places where people are very hard to get that sense of possibility. But wait, though, I got to say, I'm thinking about Belcaro or Bonnie Bray, places that don't even want dispensaries, not to link these two things, but I just can't imagine you going and being like, there's three options. So, I mean, I, I mean, there are 78 neighborhoods in Denver. The good news is we don't have to house these in all 78 neighborhoods. There's probably 10 or 15 of these around the city. Um, and we're looking at places where we have access to vacant lots that the city owns. So that, that's a different map. Um, so I'm not saying every single neighborhood will have to cite one and that's your obligation. I do think we'll want them spread around regions of the city. And, and that's part of the conversation. And there are some ways you can do, you know, things like hotel conversions can also be successful. And those are much larger numbers. Those might be 100 or 200 or 300 people at a time. So I've estimated that from 10 to 20 micro communities based on uh, how many hotels you do along the way. Uh, but I, I think it's I think it will be less invasive than people believe because there is more vacant space that is in more light industrial commercial than it is in the heart of residential. So yes, if you're in a densely residential neighborhood, it's probably not coming right close to you. Um, but if you're if, if you're on the fringe of more industrial commercial, those tend to be better places to site and seem to be more successful so far. Mike Johnston, thanks so much for coming back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be together. 
with Mayor Mike Johnston again a couple of months ago. We'll put a link to that interview in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell your favorite Denver voter about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning where we will be talking about the electric vehicle moment Colorado is having right now. See you later. We'll be back tomorrow morning where we'll... (laughs) Where we will, I'm going to say we will, so I don't just do a well. We will.